Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Saja Greenwood, MD, hosted by Steve Heilig. Today's conversation is titled, A Life of Changing the Rules. A word of warning to our listeners. This conversation includes very graphic descriptions of medical procedures surrounding women's reproductive health, including frank discussions on abortion procedures. Please bear this in mind before or during listening to this program. Thank you. Well, welcome to Commonweal, whether you've been here or not before, and to the New School, where we do an ongoing series of conversations and interviews with people from all walks of life that do notable things. So just a couple of housekeeping things. The most important was is if you have a cell phone, turn it off, please. Uh, so we're not interrupted here. We do re- record these things. See, I knew I would. <laughs> Can't figure Public out how to shame. do it. <laughs> and uh, as noted, we have an ongoing series. We have uh, some talks planned, some in the works. We're going to keep doing them because they're really fun and they're recorded and then appear some weeks later on our the Commonweal website. And uh, the next one... I slated for November 21. In about five weeks, Michael Lerner is going to speak with John Marks and Susan Collins Marks, who are leaders, deep thinkers about uh, building peace. They're peace activists. Um, So that should be fascinating. It's on a a Friday afternoon, actually. And um, these are free talks. They're by donation. Thanks. Some of you have already donated when you RSVP. That's wonderful via our new website. So that's just to defer the costs of putting these on, and we appreciate any uh, offerings you might be able to, to uh, give. So we're going to talk about a lot of things today. I think some of you know that uh, Saja Greenwood did a talk here a couple of years ago that focused on nutrition and supplements and issues like that. And uh, that is that re- is recorded and is available on the website uh, for anybody who wants to listen to it. And if we have time, we get to question and answers. Well, we can update some of that as well. But the real reason I wanted, I was eager to do this particular second talk by her here was kind of spurred by this book that I know some of you have seen and read, called "Changing the Rules: A Novel" by Saja Greenwood. And we have some copies here. They'll be available after the talk. And it is a novel, quote unquote. (laughs) But it is also a story of the times of a young woman uh, growing up and facing a lot of obstacles on the path to becoming not only herself as a woman, but also a uh, physician. So there are seemingly some parallels to the real life of of, uh, our speaker today. So... I think many of you know her, but I'll just read just to be sure that we know who she is. Sadra Greenwood received an MD from Case Western Reserve University and an MPH from the University of California Berkeley School of Public Health. She was an assistant clinical professor in the Department of OBGYN and Reproductive Sciences at UCSF in San Francisco. Worked at Planned Parenthood in San Francisco, where she started one of the first teen clinics in the United States in 1968 in response to the, quote, summer of love, appropriately. 
She started an abortion clinic at San Francisco's Planned Parenthood immediately after the Supreme Court's 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade. She also worked for International Planned Parenthood Federation in Singapore and in family planning in Latin America, Bangladesh, and Africa. Made a teaching film, Aspiration Abortion Without Cervical Dilation, in 1973 with her mentor and colleague, Alan Margolis, M.D., the film was widely used to teach medical techniques for safe abortion. She is the author of Menopause Naturally, 1996, which became a popular book for women seeking alternatives to hormone therapy. She published a novel, Changing the Rules, in 2013. Longtime Bellinus resident and plays in the renowned local Celtic group Midnight on the Water. <laughs> So just in case anybody thinks this is just a historical talk, I just was really struck by the, today's front page of the New York Times. The top story above the fold here is, clinics to open as justices halt abortion law. Texas rule won't be in effect during appeal. Long, long story about what's going on in terms of trying to shut down access to legal and safe abortion in the United States. I mean, everybody knows that is still a fight, but we have a pioneer here about uh, that issue. So let's start, though. Actually, we'll start before the book. Tell us where you were born and about your family when you were young. Okay. First of all, I'd like to thank everyone for coming. I see so many uh, friends, and it just feels like really good, and I hope everyone is comfortable and has a place to sit, and Cheryl doesn't seem to be sitting, and that worries me. <laughs> but maybe she has to go out or something, because I know she's working very hard here. So, um, I, uh, I was born in 1930 and, um, in New York City, and um, I grew up uh, with, uh, mostly with my mother. My father left uh, her uh, in 1934, and um, she was uh, a woman who um, had been an ambulance driver in World War I, and uh, she also told me that she took women who had had uh, illegal abortions, uh, took them and and took care of them. She was very interested. She was a Red Cross teacher. She was very interested in that. And one of my first really beloved toys was a was a, um, a first aid kit. I always loved my first aid kits and I had every little thing I wanted, new things in it and so on. So, so she, she influenced me a lot. And um, I'd like to say that uh, Alan has told me that his mother also took women uh, who had had illegal abortions and took care of them in New York. So uh, that was, and I've heard the same story from a lot of people. So that was very common before abortion was legal. It was uh, uh, dangerous and uh, illegal abortions still are and still take place all over the world. So maybe more of that later, but anyway, um, I um, went to, uh, my, my mother constantly moved, so I went to uh, uh, 10 or 12 different schools. Sometimes I try to uh, write them down and say, mm -hmm, this one, and that was this one. <laughs> but anyway, we were always moving. And um, ultimately, uh, when I went to college, one of the first things that happened to me was that my roommate got pregnant. So... Um, I entered that, the world uh, myself 
at, at the age of 16 or 17. And uh, I saw that although in, in the 1940s, uh, people didn't talk that much about sex, people didn't, contraception was illegal. Uh, I was in uh, Massachusetts, it was also illegal in Connecticut and in many states. And um, nevertheless, there was this whole underground of talking about it, where do we find it, what happens if we get pregnant? And uh, um, my sister was, uh, I had an older sister, she was married to um, uh, a doctor from India, cardiologist from India. But he was also very interested in helping women uh, to obtain abortions. And so he had a whole uh, protocol uh, that uh, he advised me to advise my roommate to uh, to go through. It didn't work, but uh, uh, including jumping off the double decker bed. But ultimately, yeah, it was it was it was hard, and everyone was so scared, and it was so silent. And so anyway, um, she found a doctor in uh, Boston and um, had an abortion and was fine. I've seen her you know, many times since. And, but if you didn't have the means for that, you were uh, pretty much uh, in danger. So. so college was where? College was at Radcliffe. Right. And so that's where your book starts. That's where my book starts. Yeah. And so this book is a novel, as we say. What, roughly, what percentage of it would you say is based or very close to reality for you? 100%. Nah. <laughs> Which is exactly what I thought. So, so you are Claire. I am Claire. Claire is Umer. Now, just wondering, how many people have read this? Quite a few, like half, like half the people here, or more, more than half. So... Twice. <laughs> so just what you're saying here. So Claire has shown up at, at school, and she says, uh, uh, she's wondering about you know, how to do contraception and so forth. And she says, the student health service was not an option. Sex was taboo. And rumor had it that if you, you could be prevented from graduating if you were caught. So uh -huh. when I was in college in the 70s, that would have meant that nobody graduated. <laughs> <laughs> was that true? I mean, did they, you know, expel people for being well, sexually active? Or okay, I never heard of it, but I had an, a very brilliant friend in college who had transferred from Wellesley. And the reason that she had transferred from Wellesley is that she had been caught uh, having sex with her boyfriend on a golf course. And Wellesley had, a, <laughs> Wellesley had a student council, and the student council told her that um, what she had to do was to read a certain Plato um, uh, essay, and it was the one in which he, unbelievable. It was the one in which he agreed to take the poison that killed him. Oh my God. Yes. That was what she had to read and to talk on it. And if she would do that, she could stay at Wellesley. And she was a brave person. And she said, of course, I'm not going to do that. It's disgusting. So she was kicked out of Wellesley and she came to Radcliffe. <laughs> so... <laughs> so yeah. But the bigger context, I thought this was interesting, is um, Claire, 
in the book is then struggling with her relationship with a new serious boyfriend named Michael. And she's talking with her, some friends, girlfriends, and she says, or her friend says, we're back to that same old subject we always talk about. Do you want to try to be someone yourself or do you want to live through a man? Mm-hmm. So this was in the context of what would come to be called feminism, right? Uh-huh. I mean, that well, a was... A bit later. Yes. Right. <laughs> but I mean, this is you didn't yeah. even have a name for it yet, but this was yeah. what you were struggling with yes. at that point. Do you think that that was extremely common or that you and your, your friends being at an elite Ivy League school and obviously um, driven in some ways were pushing the envelope in that respect? Yes. Uh, to both your questions. It was extremely common. And uh, people at this Ivy League school were trying to push the envelope. But I have um, a couple of things to say about that. I went to my 25th college reunion. And at that time, and we had sort of like a gathering where we all sat together and all the people that had come back and talked about our lives. And the theme was resentment and rage about... They had been, they had gotten a divorce, or their husband had found a younger woman, or something like that, and they had no way to support themselves because they had volunteered at the school, they had volunteered at the library, they had done all kinds of things uh, to help uh, their family and their communities, but they didn't have uh, secretarial skills or any other kind of skills. I mean, this wasn't true of all of them, but this was a major theme. So even at the elite school, it wasn't necessarily true. You know, you majored in comparative literature and you, uh, you loved reading Proust and all that, but it didn't he- head you toward a job and there was absolutely no uh, job readiness or thoughts about careers or counseling or nothing like that. Just really, things have changed. <laughs> things have changed. Well, and of course, not uh, in the 60s then, Betty Frieden wrote in yeah. The Feminine Mystique that even a lot of women who were still with their affluent husbands had a lot of rage, too, about being yeah. housewives. So, yeah. yeah, it was kind of a damned if you do and damned if you don't, yeah. maybe, in some ways. And later, much later in the book, you said... Um, Getting good grades and not really thinking for herself, she was stuck, still being the good girl that everyone liked. Uh-huh. So was this a struggle? I mean, were you? did you feel back then that you really had to kind of squelch your ambitions and your outspokenness to, to be liked? Or Oh, uh, that's been a theme of my life. Yes. Say more. Well, um, I think I was a very ambitious because of my parents who uh, my father would come back once or twice a year uh, to meet with my sister and and I and my mother. And we would talk about what we were going to do. And they always said, you know, what are you you thinking now? What are you going to do in life? And no matter what I said, they were very encouraging. So I say in the book, I, I wanted to be a forest ranger. So they never said... You know, there are no women forest rangers. Uh, uh, And whatever I wanted, I wanted to be a senator, they said. There are no women senators. I mean, they never never said those things. They always encouraged me, you can do anything you want. So um, 
being an active person, I, I wanted to do a, a lot of things. Yeah, but then I also, you know, wanted to get along and to be liked and have a lot of friends and mm -hmm. yeah. So. And then you you had a very serious boyfriend again. That you yeah. call Michael here, and you you were writing in here about some serious struggles with him about, I mean, who's dominant in a sense, is a forceful, intelligent guy. And um, did that, I mean, this is something that plays out in the book quite a bit, mm -hmm. that even though he was a progressive thinker, in a sense, it sounds like, um, he still had a, somewhat of a domineering attitude towards you. I was always fighting him in my mind, yes. Yeah. Always fighting him in my mind. Whatever he said, I would think of the opposite. And <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked about so there's a you know you're having a, an argument or a discussion with him, and and uh, you talk. You, I mean, you were arguing about it says witch hunts, red baiting, McCarthy, nonviolence. I mean, all of these issues that yeah. became became. They were big. Yeah, they were big at that time. So, but yeah. you were so, but you, and so, he, do you think he resented you in some ways talking about these as being a woman? You know, no, 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 not at all. Uh, I think he really enjoyed uh, argument, arguing with me, and uh, he always had a response, and then I would have one, and and uh, uh, we um, kind of duped it out. But, but <laughs> yeah, that was all right. That was all right. Yeah, that was fine with him. <laughs> There was one kind of almost, maybe not a side, I don't know, there was one mention here that I thought was interesting, talking about your father. Uh, my dad hates doctors. He thinks they're stupid because they totally ignore the things he espouses like yoga and health food. Mm -hmm. So, was that true? Your yes. father was like that? Yes, absolutely. See? Yes. Now I see why you ended up in Bolinas. <laughs> <laughs> you were ahead of your time. Again, on that even. So... You get to med school. Case it was just called Western Reserve, I think. Case yes. Western Reserve, which has long had a reputation as being something of a progressive uh, medical school. So yes. I think you know. Do you was that in? You think it was fortuitous that you just a good chance that you ended up there, or did you actually choose that? Oh one? yeah, we we chose it because it was first of all it was a place that admitted both of us, and secondly because it had uh, a. A, a reputation for having changed the medical curriculum in a way that made more sense and introduced clinical care uh, in the first year so that you weren't just uh, uh, studying and, uh, for three years and then suddenly seeing patients. You were seeing patients right away. And you mentioned, I mean, a, a key part of the book is that you're assigned to a woman yes. to kind of follow her from pregnancy yes. through birth. yes. And she actually ends up, in a very uh, moving and harrowing part in the book, ends up dying of a septic abortion. Yes. A formative experience, I would think. Yes. And so that, would you see that as part of what you set you on your path, that particular case? Yes. Yeah. I would, yes, because previously, before med school, I had had a contraceptive failure, and I um, had... Um, searched for an abortion myself, uh, actually both on the West Coast. And th there's a lot that happened that isn't in the book, but both on the West Coast and in New York City. And uh, I, I got a view of the underground 
of what it was like to um, have an illegal abortion on, not under the optimum circumstances. So uh, I uh, was getting very desperate and um, finally um, went to my father and uh, said, I don't know what to do. And he was a guy who'd had um, a lot of affairs and so he had um, sent at least one of his uh, lady friends to uh, a very um, uh, careful and renowned OBGYN on Lexington Avenue in New York and he sent me there and he paid for it. And so whereas I was enormously relieved, on the other hand, when my patient became pregnant with a, a botched illegal abortion, or I didn't know she was pregnant, but when she came in bleeding from this uh, and in septic shock, um, I still couldn't talk about it. I still couldn't say to her, I've been through this, I know what you're going through, this is terribly difficult, but hold on, we're gonna save you, or you know, all those things I wanted to say I couldn't, because it was impossible. And you note that the rule then was that if the woman was still conscious anyway and named her doctor the, yeah. who did the abortion, they could both yeah. go to jail. Yeah. Yeah. And in her case, it wasn't a doctor. Yeah. Whoever or whoever. Doctor, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, we were talking earlier before this, and what I always remember is when I showed up at UCLA Medical Center, part of the tour they gave you as orientation was they showed you a ward that I believe was 70 beds originally that was the ward just for such cases, septic uh, abortion. And uh, this, the, the, the key, the message in when they gave you this tour as a freshman was that this was shut down almost overnight when abortion was legalized in California. And converted into actually they converted it into a pediatrics ward. So, um, so I think this happened all over the country uh, as after Roe and yeah. various state rules. Is that that correct? So, yes. so you didn't see this happening later on, but no. So we'll come back to that. I want to go at key on one thing in in here too. You also say in that class in medical school, I think you said it was ninety four men and four women. Uh, yeah. Right, which was a common ratio at that point, right? Yes. Um, what was that like for you, being such a tiny minority? I mean, I think of it as like, you know, fraternity hazing, but you're even worse because you're a woman there. I mean, it's hard enough for the men, often. Well, uh, it's weird, but I didn't uh, experience, because I didn't think of it that way, I didn't experience discrimination. I figured that I could use my, f my female ways I did, uh, uh, to uh, be friendly with the professors. I mean, I didn't have affairs or anything like inappropriate with the professors, but I figured I could, I could get, have a, an easier time. And I did. <laughs> I mean, that's the wanting to be liked thing. You're right. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Certain amount of charm, I guess, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you say some, I mean, so you don't, in the book, I mean, obviously it's short and it's, you don't get into a lot of the details of medical training, but I was just thinking about 
one of the things you do mention about how things change over time. And so we're going to talk, obviously, about in your own specialty and own thing. But in psychiatry, for example, you say, the psych- Dr. Bond, the psychiatric department head, told them that when girls wore their hair in ponytails, this fashion was symbolic of their unconscious wish for a penis. <laughs> Claire raised her eyebrows, but wrote it down in her notes anyway. Yeah, I wrote it down. <laughs> so, would you say, no, would you say there is, it goes on, it's, um, overall, there's been progress on a lot of these fronts. Fewer <laughs> I mean, that's a, that was a kind of a Freudianism run amok, right? Yes. But it was very dominant then, right? Yes, so and, yes. and so, yeah. So during medical training, you end up having to ch- choose a specialty. And so how did that evolve for you? Well, the way that evolved for me was that um, I was fascinated by psychiatry. And I thought that was the field that I was going to go into. So I uh, came out to San Francisco for my internship at San Francisco General Hospital. And um, the reason I came to San Francisco was that I had a friend um, who lived in Berkeley. And um, she introduced me to KPFA. And... Coming from Ohio, I'll tell you, KPFA was <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> so, so that's why I came. And um, so I, uh, I started out, after my internship, I started out at Langley Porter. And Which is the Psychiatric Training Institute, yeah. UCSF. Yeah, at UCSF. And... Uh, it was um, it was in in ways it was good, but in ways it was very disappointing. And uh, basically, I realized I was uh, in my uh, late twenties, and I wanted to have a child, and um, I did not want to be at at that point. If you um, had a child with schizophrenia, you were blamed as being a schizophrenogenic mother. That was the word. So um, I did not want to be a schizophrenogenic mother. So I asked whether I could uh, work part-time and uh, like half-time, and they said no. So I quit and went into general practice and um, all along, I had been volunteering at Planned Parenthood. In fact, since the age of 18, I mean, you and I share this. Since the age of 18, I volunteered at Planned Parenthood. Wherever I was in the world, I've always volunteered at Planned Parenthood. So um, I, I, I got into uh, that. I took an MPH. And uh, then um, I went to uh, Singapore for two years. Uh, uh, with my two children, I had two children at that point, and um, uh, I worked for the International Planned Parenthood Federation there. I went there because my husband, uh, Bob Goldsmith, was um, uh, 
a uh, tropical medicine specialist, and we went there to for him to study virology. But I got a job right away with IPPF, the International Planned Parenthood Federation, and that was great. And um, I, I I met Alan Guttmacher there. I don't know if any of you know who he was, but he was an amazing OBGYN. Uh, in the United States, who uh, was a proponent of, of uh, free access to abortion and contraception, is a, a wonderful guy, and I had the opportunity to drive him around when he was there, and so that was a big deal. And uh, then I met this wonderful Indian woman whose name was Sushila Gore, who was an obstetrician gynecologist who was working for the IPPF, and she taught me a lot, a lot, about family planning and how to introduce it to people. She was introducing it in the Philippines, she was introducing it in Malaysia, and her main thing was treat the felt need and then talk about family planning. And so we had a, um, a clinic uh, near the uh, shoreline in, in Singapore, and we treated treated the felt need, so people came in with their children with earaches and uh, pneumonia, whatever they came in with, we treated that, and then we talked to them about family planning. Now, family planning, it's not like there were family planning clinics or anything in those days, there weren't. But uh, a lot of the women, I worked in just in a, in a plain family planning clinic there too, a lot of the women had had 10, 12, or 14 pregnancies. And uh, the one thing uh, that was um, available for them uh, were diaphragms. So I fitted tons and tons and tons of diaphragms and talked to them. I learned to speak Malay, and, and uh, that was kind of the, um, the language that uh, both the Chinese and the Malaysians and the Indians spoke. And just a little, enough. And although the pill was available then, because it was available in 1961, and this was... 63 to 65 that we were there, it wasn't, it was much too expensive and this was not the United States, so, so it was diaphragms. You're listening to a conversation with Saja Greenwood, MD, and Steve Heilig. And then when did you come back to the United States? In 65. But I do want to say some, something more about being in Singapore. Mm -hmm. That is that my friends, Joan and Bill Robbins, we were in close contact and they sent me KPFA um, <laughs> <laughs> tapes constantly so I could keep up with care freedom. package. Care package. Yeah. Freedom under Clark Kerr, the whole thing. I could keep up with it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That was wonderful. So you came back in 65 uh, in your the bio statement. It says you were involved summer of that, that by 67, summer of love in yeah. setting up. Uh, yes. So abortion was being liberal. The laws were being liberalized in California at that point, and right? They were in '67, right? And so you were able then to legitimately set up yeah. clinics for people. Yes. For well, in '67, I I took a year of OBGYN, but I knew that I wasn't going through the whole thing. I didn't really like the operating room, nor was I any good at it, and um, I didn't. I, really, all I wanted to do was to do abortions. And um, I know that may sound strange, but uh, but I'd had a lot of experiences with this in Singapore, too. It was 
very problematic there as well. So anyway, my, my, my pal who became my life's partner, Alan, uh, uh, taught me in that year to do abortions, and that was just like a big deal for me, a very big deal. Like it was, um, it was, that was it. That was what I really wanted to do. I mean, I love the rest of medicine, and I did a lot of the rest of medicine, too, as a general practitioner. And I studied it constantly. But family planning and abortion was just, uh, it's just so big for me because of my uh, life's experiences uh, and just seeing so many women suffering. And, you know, the 12 and 14 pregnancy thing was just, uh, in, 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 in Singapore and Malaysia, was, was just tragic. These women were really beaten down by, uh, their, by their experiences. So uh, abortion being the topic uh, and your focus then, um, we've heard now, we've talked about the public health reason, the ethical reason in terms of what the harm of having it illegal is on a biological level. So there's a huge battle that goes on forever about right to life, et cetera. What's your like stump statement for somebody on why it's not a fully formed human being. Why, why you don't, you know, life begins at conception, all these arguments. What's your take on that from really a, a biological point of view? I think that the woman uh, is a fully formed human being who has the ability to look at her life and to plan it and to know what self-determination is for her and whether she is having an abortion because... She's uh, economically uh, in bad shape, that she has as many children as she can possibly take care of, that she knows that she never wanted to be a mother and that she would not do a good job at it um, uh, because she uh, was uh, coerced into sex by someone who is definitely not her ideal life's partner in any way, and that she realizes, as all women do, that if she has a child, she's going to be taking care of this child basically emotionally as well as physically for, for years, if not the rest of her life emotionally. So that compulsory pregnancy is just anathema to me. When you want to have, I saw this so many times, I, you know, and myself, I, when, I, when you want to have a child, it's a huge emotional experience and it's a wonderful thing. But when you don't want to have a child, there's equal emotion on the other side. Equal. And a lot of people just can't realize that. So you talk in the book about coming across or learning about a uh, kind of a landmark medical book by Tossig, which was actually published in 1936 originally, um, called Abortion uh, Induced and Spontaneous, I believe. And you... It's the only thing you actually quote fairly extensively from this book, which was a landmark uh, in the time because it was something that wasn't talked about before. And one of the quotes ends, law can hardly fail eventually to become humane if only to permit medicine to become merciful. And which is somewhat implying that there's progress. Right. So what I started with, again, is the New York Times and this battle in the courts going all the way to the Supreme Court. And the other, I mean, just yesterday, so Planned Parenthood sends out newsletters to donors, etc. And I read this to you. It has this lovely letter in here. I'll just read it. It's very short. Uh, 
letter from a longtime supporter. It's hand scribbled here, and they printed it July 2014. Enclosing my check for $25 to help fight the Supreme Court decisions on Hobby Lobby and Massachusetts buffer zone. I am 101 years old. I am outraged to see what is happening to women's rights regarding their bodies. I have lived through the time when contraception and abortion were illegal. I recall that when women and men met secretly to learn about birth control, I taught school in New York City and daily I'd walk past the Margaret Sanger Clinic. I cannot believe that we have regressed so badly. After all, this is 2014. Julia Bernstein. Oh, isn't that beautiful letter? So... Legalization occurred in California early on, uh, then was taken further in 1970, and then Roe versus Wade came in 1973 on a national level. And so what were you doing then? Were you just swamped with <laughs> with work, I imagine? Yeah, well, um, I, uh, I started an abortion clinic at Planned Parenthood in San Francisco. And, um, and I just say, when I arrived at Planned Parenthood in the 1980s, her name was kind of this legendary... <laughs> iconic uh, guru of pro-choice movement oh, in San Francisco. Well, that's not yeah. that. <laughs> Sorry. I appreciate that. Thank you. So, so that, was, that was very exciting. Uh, we, had, um, uh, we had an all-woman staff, and uh, the guy at the, um, at the reception desk was, was a guy. So it was... And uh, <laughs> we wrote... I wrote to Herb Cain a little piece on that, and um, he loved it and, of course, printed it, but Planned Parenthood was very unhappy about it, <laughs> but it was done. Anyway, so, um, so uh, then uh, my, um, my mentor, Alan, um, we had already uh, gotten together as, as life partners, and we... Um, we were, well, we made, we made a film about, uh, uh, entitled Aspiration Abortion Without Cervical Dilation, which was a film about the flexible plastic cannula that uh, had been um, invented by um, a man called Harvey Carman, who was an illegal abortionist and a psychologist in L.A., uh, who uh, had... Um, a, a speckled reputation, but was extremely pro-choice, and uh, so he he came to um, to San Francisco to illustrate uh, to do to to illustrate his flexible cannula, which enabled a cannula being something like a little straw with an opening at the end, and you attach that to a suction machine, and you could suck out. Uh, the lining of the uterus, so it could be used for an endometrial biopsy to just remove the non-pregnant lining of the uterus, or it could be used for a pregnancy. But you didn't have to open up the cervix nearly as much with this. So he came to illustrate this. So this was a big deal because it took place at at, um, what's now called California Pacific. It was then called Presbyterian Hospital. And uh, there were a number of uh, very uh, forward-thinking OBGYNs who came to this demonstration. But I think you could probably imagine that having a non-doctor uh, do an abortion in a, in, a, in a hospital was kind of a big deal. That... 
<laughs> kind of a big deal. But anyway. Even now that would be. Even now that would be. Yeah. So, so he did it, and it worked out really well. And so we all started using this cannula, and Alan and I made a, 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 like a teaching film uh, about it. And um, so I've kind of digressed from your question that I don't no. remember. Well, no, no, I'm just talking about what you've been, what you went on yeah. to do, oh, all right. uh, 70s, 80s, and so. And then we you, also wanted to learn a better technique for right. second trimester abortions, because the technique at that point was if your um, uterus was uh, enlarged uh, past uh, 13 weeks, 12 or 13 weeks, the uh, the way that it was done was that the uh, pregnant uterus was injected. Uh, with uh, a saline solution that would um, uh, bring on uh, would bring on contractions and and the woman would uh, pass the, the the fetus and uh, sometimes something else was added to kill the fetus and it it was uh, very painful and very difficult to sort of go th go through a mini childbirth so uh, we went to England and. Um, we knew there that there was a, a man who was um, uh, very skilled at doing uh, a new a new method, a, a quicker, less traumatic method for the woman, uh, uh, called dilation and extraction. So uh, we uh, we watched him, and uh, we came home, and Alan taught me how to do that. So then we started doing those at uh, UCSF. And um, we also wrote a paper about it with uh, a, um, a wonderful uh, psychiatrist named Nancy Coltrider, who um, uh, helped us write this paper in, in which we concluded that whereas the, um, uh, the method of dilation and extraction was uh, much easier on the woman, it was harder on the, uh, on the operator. Was harder on the doctor, uh, both because of it was a little a little riskier, and also because you um, you saw the brains coming out and the limbs coming out, and it was uh, well, both were both were difficult. Anyway, the people who presented themselves for these second trimester abortions were in general, and this is still true, and there's still a whole thing about after 20 weeks, will they be allowed? That's something that's going on politically. But the people who presented themselves at, at 18 weeks or something like that, they were either teenagers who were terrified, who had had very irregular periods, they had no idea if they were pregnant or not, and couldn't talk to their parents and didn't know what to do. And, and finally, they were kind of sticking out. And uh, so that was one. Then there were heroin addicts who uh, just um, didn't, were out of control of their lives and had gotten pregnant. And then there were people who were mentally, uh, mentally disturbed in, in multiple ways. And, uh, and then there were people who... Uh, had uh, found out that they uh, were bearing a child with uh, an inheritable disease that was uh, 
very problematic for them. So there were a lot of categories of people who desperately needed this, and and uh, that's that's what we did. Which continues to this day. Which continues to this right. day. Yes. It, I'm interested to hear you mention the difficulty for the clinician, for yeah. the doctor. Obviously, you're very committed to this, and it, you know, but was that ever an issue for you in general? Did yes. you have uh, second guessing yourself about were you yes. really doing the right thing here, or no? I never second like guessed that I was doing the right thing, but okay. I became a vegetarian because, I mean, this is a. I'm sorry to say this to everybody, but. No. We're in it. <laughs> That's why we're here. I, be I became a vegetarian because the little limbs and things that came out looked, you know, they looked kind of like chicken or something. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to see this. It turns out at UCSF there was a remarkable man who had been a Jesuit priest named Al Johnson. Did you know him? I know him still. I work with him. Yeah, he's, a wonderful he's guy. At, he's at CPMC now. Yeah. He was the he established the well he's president of the University of San Francisco, which is the Jesuit school in San Francisco. He left there and established the program in uh, medical ethics at UCSF. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. he was the medical ethicist, and, yes. and I and I went to him and I I told him uh, that this was disturbing from the point of view of the fetal parts, but I just uh, he said. To me, I, I described what was going on with me psychologically, and he said, just remember who is your patient. The woman is your patient. You're doing the right thing. Well, of course, to have this Catholic guy tell me I'm doing the right thing, this medical ethicist, that really helped me. That really helped me, yeah. So, I mean, I, I knew everything he said, but, but it was... You got a blessing as I got a blessing. <laughs> I got a blessing. No, Al's Johnson. a wonderful guy. Yeah. He's one of my yeah. mentors too. Yeah. Um, so the technology—that's an issue about progress in technology. Yeah. I want to—I want to hear your thoughts on uh, medical abortion, as it's called, which is using yes. pills, using medication yes. for abortion, I think it's which the future. is. Yeah, so this is something that's been uh, known now for you know twenty something years. Yeah. It was approved in Europe first when it was called RU486, has been brought here over through the 90s, is available, but is still controversial and, and fought over. What, what do you mm -hmm. think? How will it become the future? Or Well, I think it's going to become the future wherever... Okay, it has become the future in Latin America and actually all over the world because, one, there's two pills that women take to, um, to promote an abortion... Uh, with medication rather than with suction. And the first one is what was called RU486. And it's an anti-progesterone drug, progesterone being the, the woman's hormone that sustains the pregnancy. It's an anti-progesterone drug. And if you take that, you will probably uh, stop the pregnancy from developing any further and basically kill the fetus. But then you have to expel the fetus. So the second drug is called misoprostol, and uh, it is a, a prostaglandin compound. I'll explain that in a minute. And it causes the uterus to squeeze and contract and expel uh, the, the fetus. But the fetus is not going to be alive when it's expelled. And um, it will work up to uh, about 12 weeks and 
possibly a little further, but it, a little further it becomes more dangerous uh, because it might cause uterine rupture as the uterine wall becomes thinner. But the thing about this mesoprostol, which is being used all over the world now, is that it is also used for ulcers, and it's um, Pfizer and Searle uh, sort of discovered it and promoted it, and it's called Cytotec. And Cytotec is something that you take if you um, have symptoms of a stomach ulcer or actually has a have a stomach ulcer, and it ulcer, and it works uh, sort of like proton pump inhibitors such as Nexium, those drugs that people take to uh, decrease the amount of stomach acid that, uh, that their stomach is putting out. And uh, so uh, since, uh, since you're told very clearly, do not take this drug if you're pregnant, uh, all over the world people know, uh-huh, right. Uh -huh. And uh, it's over-the-counter in Mexico, sold over-the-counter in Mexico. So over-the-counter, it's very widely used throughout Latin America. And um, without, the, without the RU486, the anti-progesterone pill, it, um, it doesn't work quite as well, but it, work, it works apparently between 80 and 90% of the time in the, in the first trimester. So it is widely used. And when Texas shut down um, the clinics, it's particularly the clinics in southern Texas near the Mexican border, women were immediately getting Cytotec, uh, uh, getting prescriptions for it, getting it uh, Ill, Ill, just illegally in the sense that someone would get it and, and sell it on the, on the side, or they would go cross over into Mexico and get it. And um, in Mexico, um, abortion is legal, in the first trimester only in Mexico City, but in the conser conservative states, uh, women are getting Cytotec sent to them from Mexico City and <coughs> taking it in Guanajuato or somewhere else like that. So um, it's, uh, it's, being, it's also being used in Africa, it's also being used in, uh, in in Pakistan, and it's being used all over the world. Um, which brings me to Rebecca Gompertz and Women on Web. This was the article uh, in the New York Times Magazine a month or two ago. Yeah. And um, these are people trying to make it much more accessible around the world, right? Yes. So Rebecca <clears throat> Gompertz is a, is a Dutch physician who in the early 1990s uh, decided to uh, charter a boat, build an abortion clinic on, on the boat. She had an art student who helped her do that. And sail to the uh, international waters outside of Ireland. Whoa. <laughs> so she was, uh, needless to say, this got publicity, needless to say, she was swamped with uh, inquiries and women who wanted to uh, uh, row out to <laughs> to her boat, and she couldn't do it because um, there was some kind of a, a a Dutch law that she had some kind of a certificate that she had not legally obtained, and she didn't want to lose her license in Holland. So, 
So she sailed back, and of course she was reviled, greatly reviled for having done this, and people thought it's just a publicity stunt that this woman is doing and so forth. But the next place she went to was Poland, and I don't know what happened there, but the next place she went to was Portugal. And again, she was swamped with people, and I think she did do some procedures there, and I know that in the next year, Portugal changed its law. So uh, she then decided, wait a minute, this boat thing is not really going to work all over the world. Uh, how about the web? That's what everyone's using. So she set up a website called Women on Web. And you can all go to Women on Web. It's amazing. Uh, so people are going there from all over the world, and she won't sell her drugs to anyone in a country where abortion is legal. So you don't get it from, you don't get these drugs in this country, but you get them in, in, in Brazil and, and Paraguay and throughout Africa and Pakistan, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And she has teamed up with a, um, an Indian um, drug manufacturer who uh, seems like a very reputable and kind-hearted man, and he sells this, um, uh, I believe it's both, it is, both, both the RU-46 and the mesoprostol for approximately 90 euros, which is approximately $100, yeah. and sends them all over. And there's, in this article in the New York <coughs> Times, if any of you want to read it, I've got two copies of it, it's so good. Um, uh, it, um, it, a lot of times it, it doesn't get to, to the country like uh, um, the article has the example of a woman in, in Brazil who desperately wants it. She's getting toward the end of her first trimester, which is when it's going to work, and uh, it's not coming. It's impounded in some other city, and she orders it again, and <coughs> but finally it, finally it arrives. So uh, it's 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 not that easy in a lot of places where abortion is illegal uh, to to get the drugs, but it's it's widely. Used. So, do you think this should be an over-the-counter option here? Yes, I think it should be an over-the-counter option with a lot of supervision because, first of all, people need to know how far along they are, and a lot of times they don't. And that reminds me to, to, to tell you uh, about telemedicine. So in telemedicine, let's say that you are somewhere in Alaska without um, a doctor uh, around, but you're pretty sure about your dates, and maybe the, uh, the person who is... Uh, uh, let's say uh, a nurse practitioner or physician's assistant does a pelvic exam and says, yeah, you're in the first trimester. Then you have, <coughs> then you meet um, on Skype a doctor in Chicago. And he or she takes a history, understands where you're at with all of that. And somehow, I, I didn't really get how this happened, but Somehow in your little clinic in, in, in Alaska, a door is opened, a, lo a locked drawer is open, and there are the drugs, and you take them according to 
according to uh, plan. And, and it, you do, you take the, the RU-46 first, and 24 hours later, you start taking the, the, uh, the side attack, the, the mesoprostol that causes your uterus to, to squeeze and contract and will expel the fetus. And uh, you take that either vaginally or under your tongue or in your buccal area by your cheek. And uh, many people think it's safer to take it in the mouth than, than vaginally because some infections have occurred uh, when it's used vaginally. Uh, so anyway, um, this, is, this procedure with the, with the telemedicine has been approved by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So that's... Uh, it does happen in certain other specialties, particularly dermatology, where you don't have a dermatologist in an area, but you can do a Skype, and, and yeah. the dermatologist can look at the skin, obviously, and do prescriptions, so you, yeah. you can get accessibility in more remote yeah. areas. So, so this is, really good. This yeah. is a new uh, concept that seems to be spreading. You, uh, you're talking about other countries. Uh, you wanted to mention... Uh, Chile. Chile and Bangladesh? Yes. Okay. There's two, two stories that Alan and I went through, so the Chile story. We were sent to Latin America by something called the Pathfinder Fund in 1973. The Pathfinder Fund was started by Richard Gamble, who was a very wealthy man from Procter & Gamble family, and he's dedicated to family planning. And when we got to, we, so we went to a number of different countries, and when we got to Chile, it was within 10 days of the time that Allende fell, he was assassinated, so it was, before that, but it was, a, it was a country extraordinarily divided and the medical profession extraordinarily divided by uh, um, conservative versus liberal people. And so we went into the main hospital and there was a big ward on the right and they told us, this was our septic abortion ward. This was filled sometimes two patients to a bed. Mm -hmm. Note that it's empty. Mm. Then in the middle, in the, there was this big central hall. And at the end of the central hall, there were um, screens and an abortion pump and two doctors. So two women, and then there was a long line of women coming for an abortion. Mm -hmm. And uh, so while one woman was being examined and questioned by the doctor, the other, doc the other doctor was using the... Uh, the, the abortion pump to do an abortion and uh, so they they had one pump and two doctors and they went back and forth and it was it was very impressive just to see this amazing amazing sight and after Allende was assassinated uh, the whole law changed and Chile how many years later this was 1973 it's still Ill illegal to have an abortion under any circumstances, including the pregnancy threatens the life of the mother. Okay, so that's what we saw. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. And um, then uh, the other experience was Bangladesh. Now, Alan had gone to Bangladesh several times and uh, we um, to, to work on their... Um, uh, GYN uh, uh, family planning situation. And uh, we were sent there by an organization called IPASS. IPASS stands for International Pregnancy Advisory Services and it's in North Carolina. And in the, um, 
in the 70s and 80s, uh, IPASS had decided that what was really needed throughout the world was um, a, a portable, easy, inexpensive suction pump for doing first trimester abortions because the big electric pumps um, are heavy, expensive, and not every place has electricity. And they're very, it's very obvious what they're for. You're listening to a conversation with Saja Greenwood, MD, and Steve Heilig. So uh, they, um, IPASS contracted with a, with a place called Battelle in uh, Seattle, which is a kind of like an innovative, um, a company doing innovative things with technology. And Battelle uh, invented, I mean, it seems simple, but it's really good, a 50cc plastic syringe, and you pull the plunger back, and uh, you have, um, you have a, um, a cannula, this flexible cannula on the end, but you have it sealed off. So as you pull the plunger back, oh, okay, you pull the plunger back, and you're creating a vacuum, and then you seal it off. And then two little feet, two little legs come out and hold it. So you've got an empty 50cc syringe with a good vacuum in it. And you insert the cannula into the uterus, take off the, the um, uh, clamp, and you empty the uterus. The uterine contents come into the 50cc syringe. And so... Uh, these were actually, I mean, it was amazing. And the 70s was such an amazing time in, in, <laughs> in terms of openness about sexuality and all that kind of thing. So these were, uh, we went to a conference in Hawaii where, where these things were being handed out to every nation in the world and talked about and so forth. But then under Reagan, everything clamped down. But nevertheless, um, uh in Bangladesh, they had, a, first of all, a realization that it's a very poor country. It used to be quite a rich country, um, and uh, they were selling uh, their uh, silks and uh, fabrics all over the world. Then some, something about the English and, and, and colonialism, and, and, and they no longer had a market for their fabrics, and they went into dire poverty. And, and uh, population growth was really threatening survival. And so um, they instituted something called menstrual regulation. So they took, uh, they, they had little health centers everywhere in Bangladesh, but they didn't have doctors, uh, they didn't have pregnancy tests, they didn't have uh, equipment, uh, very much equipment, but... Um, they uh, trained uh, women who were uh, maybe had, they were literate, they maybe had six years of education. They trained them to do, uh, to recognize the size of the uterus by doing pelvic exams and uh, to um, uh, do what's called menstrual regulation, as, as I had described. You put the cannula into the uterus and you uh, evacuate the uterus with these. 50 cc syringes, and uh, so the woman doesn't know whether she was pregnant or not. She knows she hasn't gotten her period for two or three months, and she's very worried. And 
the, the um, operator could probably tell there wasn't hardly anything in that uterus or there was quite a bit. She probably was pregnant, but um, there wasn't a lot of communication about this. They just uh, did it. But the thing that was so good was that the uh, n number of septic abortions in Bangladesh really went down with this really went and they had an organization for the study of septic abortions. Bangladesh had a really, really creative intelligentsia and uh, they're Bengalis and the Bengalis have all, always prided themselves on being literary smart people and they are. And so anyway, um, we, uh, we went over the country looking at, sort of checking up on these... Uh, uh, on these menstrual regulation, wh whether they were using proper st sterile technique, whether they were using, reusing the uh, cannulas, even though they sterilize them too many times so that they would just really lose their ability uh, to be effective. And uh, that, was, that was really, that was just fascinating. And in reviewing this, it was, wasn't it? Two more things I want to say. When I saw the women on the exam table when they, you know, had brought their saris up. I have never seen such thin legs in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just like, they had stick legs. And most of them were under 90 pounds. Mm -hmm. So pregnancy was not easy for them at all. And um, oh, it's still going on. Menstrual regulation is still going on in, in Bangladesh. And apparently the... Uh, more, more orthodox religious people have not prevented it. So, you you mentioned overpopulation, and I'm wondering if you ever thought uh, this has been a very politicized arena, and, and the population bomb, as it was called for a while, Paul Ehrlich, population overpopulation issues were very prominent for a time. They're much less talked yeah. about now. It's always been difficult to talk about reproductive rights in that context because then people will bring up genocide yeah. and all that yeah. kind of thing. What were your thoughts? Did you ever think of the bigger population issues in the Constantly. context? Yeah. Constantly. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think we're threatened uh, as, as, a, um, as a planet by the, uh, the growth of the human population. And I also think that if women are given, if couples are given and women are given the ability to, to limit uh, the number of pregnancies they have, wherever that has happened, uh, it's, there's been a dramatic slowing. So I don't think it has to go the, the China way. We also went, Alan and I also went on a family planning trip to China where in factories there were big posters on the wall of every woman and every, uh, by name and dates and when her menstrual period came. Yeah, and that was the one child family thing. And so that's very drastic and, and, and uh, erosive of your privacy. But everywhere else, uh, I, I think it's just really important that uh, if women can have the ability and the education to uh, to limit their family size, things will get a lot better. In in that context, we were talking before about the new Nobel Peace Prize winner, yeah. Malala. Yeah. Young woman, and do you want yeah. to say something about her? Have Have, have any of you seen her uh, on television? Yeah. So uh, she is a famous line she's she's 
she's now um, 17, but she was 15 when she was shot in the head uh, by uh, um, some ex Muslim extremists who objected to uh, her not only going to school, she was shot in the head in the school bus, but, but uh, proselytizing for women's education. And they missed her brain. They went down the left side of her head. She's, I think, deaf in her left ear due to the, due to the bullet and into her arm. I think she can use her left arm. But she is the most remarkable person. And what she said at, um, when she spoke before the United Nations was, um, one child, one pen, one teacher, one book, you'll change the world. That's so beautiful. And what she said, what she said at the same conference was, she was asked, or maybe this was, I can't remember if this was John Stewart who was bowled over by her, or... He tries to adopt her on, yeah. on stage. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, what she said was, when I was in school in Pakistan, I wanted to be a doctor. We all wanted to be doctors, but now I see. Doctors can only treat so many patients but when I am prime minister of Pakistan, yeah, the whole country will be, you know, under my care. And she wears Benazir, Benazir Bhutto's shawl, the, the murdered prime minister, the assassinated prime minister. So, I mean, it's just an incredible story of girl power. I want to ask you, uh, since you then, you did do work uh, and wrote a book about menopause, and later, since that book, there has been tremendous uh, controversy within medicine yeah. about the role of hormones, the safety, long-term effects, regard to cancer, et cetera. So I'm sure you've watched that with great interest. Uh, what's your, uh, your takeaway on this now? Have you changed over the years? or? Uh, mm, well, I... I wrote, I wrote the book after I had had um, breast cancer, and uh, I had it once in, in this, uh, one breast was affected in the 70s and the other one in the 90s, so um, I, uh, I realized there had to be a, um, a way for people who didn't want to take hormones to, uh, to get through this time in, in life, and um, at the time that I wrote it, I was on the board of something called the North American Menopause Society, and it was, um, oh, whoa. I would just become apoplectic at the things that would be said at this society <laughs> because they were getting big money from uh, from the drug companies, and uh, Premarin was one of the... the um, uh, widest selling uh, medications in the United States. Probably been overcome now by... Uh, statins. Statins, right. <laughs> and, and psychiatric meds. Yeah, and psych yeah. yeah, antidepressants. But at any rate, in those days it was primary. And so uh, I was kind of a lone voice. And a couple of other women were kind of lone voices against this enormous... Um, power of uh, the, uh, the, the OBGYNs who were, not, not that all OBGYNs were, were in favor of, of, of hormone replacement, but 
they were um, very, 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 very strong. And so I was kind of happy to, um, to be a, a lone voice, although uh, wanting to be liked uh, made it... <laughs> <laughs> it was hard because <laughs> I wasn't liked at all by them. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, I, I think that at time the, 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 the Women's Health Initiative and uh, uh, the Nurses' Health Study and numerous really large studies have shown that uh, um, there is a, an increased danger of breast cancer in, in hormone use, and that uh, some people say it's only from the progesterone. Other people say the English study showed it was both the estrogen and progesterone. So um, I feel, you know, kind of vindicated in in, in that. And and uh, um, the, there are a, a number of other reasons that these. Uh, Hormones may be problematic, and in, in, including uh, higher higher risk of, of uh, uh, certain other cancers, including endometrial and possibly ovarian, and uh, higher risk of, of gallbladder disease, and so, and and definitely not uh, uh, definitely not a lower risk of, of dementia. So. No, I haven't really changed my point of view, although I can see that for people that have an early menopause that this is uh, a really useful drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but around the age of 50, I think it's best to uh, go told. And otherwise, uh, have you followed up on uh, best ways to deal with menopause, say with other, you know, complementary medicine or whatever you might want to call it? Are there other things that you advise that are new since the book came out? I think that uh, the two things that are in the book are still important. And, and one is that people who exercise regularly, a lot of people said, I walked through my menopause. And that has been helpful to a lot of people. And um, a form of relaxation that's called paced respiration, uh, wherein you uh, spend 15 minutes morning and night uh, slowing your breathing down to f six complete breaths per minute uh, and just counting. You, you don't have to be doing any kind of meditation, although counting your breath turns into a meditation. Uh, that has been shown to uh, reduce hot flashes by about 50% and the intensity of them as well. And there are some... Um, other medications that are now being used, and I haven't really kept up as well with that. When you, on your blog, which yeah. you have, and the things that uh, are printed in the local paper here and yeah. so forth, you've been very uh, informative about supplements, vitamins, and things like that as well. And at your talk here a couple of years ago, you focused on a few items, vitamin D being one and the whole kind of tension between sun exposure versus yeah. adequate level of vitamin D. It seems to me that that has, again, been more and more borne out by yeah. the research over time that so many of us are deficient and, and need uh, to find a way to get more vitamin D. Is yeah. that, that correct as far as you? Yes, yeah. I think so. And uh, 
the, 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 there's controversy in that too. And there's mm -hmm. people who feel, okay, sometimes that maybe 30 nanograms per ml is ideal, but if you go up to 40, it could be too much. On the other hand, not too long ago, uh, Donald Abrams spoke here. I, I was away at a flute camp, so I missed him. But Alan, <laughs> Alan gave me his notes, and he wants it much higher. Yeah, yeah in nanograms for ML. So uh, for people that are um, recovering from cancer or wanting to um, prevent it, I think it's very good. I, I, I think because we live inside so much, because we shield ourselves from the sun, because most uh, most women shield their face from the sun so that they won't get wrinkles. Um, it's a good idea because the body uh, only makes vitamin D when the sun gets on your skin. Mm -hmm. And if the sun doesn't get on your skin, you need to take some. There have been controversies continuing about the utility of multivitamins as well. Yeah. And, and purity, but uh, mainly the utility. And there's been studies yeah. that actually showed higher mortality and morbidity yeah. with people, et cetera, et cetera. Have you followed that? What do yes, you, yeah. I have. And um, I'm not convinced uh, by those studies uh, in the sense that um, the, um, the men, I think it was the men's health study that looked at that um, showed, uh, well, basically what they showed was no, no decrease in either heart disease or cancer from taking multivitamins. The two leading causes of death. Yes, the two yes. leading causes of death. Um, but most people in the United States do not eat uh, a diet that is giving them an adequate number of the so-called phytonutrients or plant nutrients that uh, will um, uh, really nourish them and prevent disease. So uh, if your diet is at all haphazard, uh, if you don't have the money to uh, uh, be preparing a lot of vegetables and fruits, or you don't have the time, I think it's a very good insurance to take a multivitamin. Mm -hmm. If you're uh, uh, drinking too much alcohol or... Um, how, much, how much is too much alcohol? <laughs> What they say is, what they say is, one drink for women, two for men, per per day. But what they say is, in the cancer world, uh, try to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. Just women in particular. Women in particular, but um, try to avoid it. Uh, don't. I really like the way Rebecca Katz. You all, you all know who she is. The uh, the um, uh, the guru of of uh, of cooking and uh, who she's written a number of books about anti cooking, anti cancer yes. nutrition, anti cancer nutrition. Yeah. So she says it's eighty percent, twenty percent. If your diet's eighty percent good, for twenty percent you can relax and enjoy yourself. And um, I, I am. I'm trying to get there. Actually, I'm, <laughs> I'm, more, I'm more like 98, too. <laughs> have you remained vegetarian? No, I have not. Yeah. I have not. Um, what else is most exciting to you or that you feel has the most evidence in the nutrition world in terms yeah, of supplements? Yeah, the, the microbiome. That's, that's the real, that's, that's really where it's at these days, the discovery 
that uh, the uh, bacteria in our intestinal tract, on our skin, uh, and um, uh, really th in, in, in many parts of the body, in our, in our ears, in our nose, etc., uh, plays such an important role in our health. And we're constantly altering that by uh, taking antibiotics, scrubbing our, scrubbing our skin with soap. I mean, I have a whole thing about this, and it, it's a little nutty sounding, so I hesitate to go into it. But... Um, Oh, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely can understand uh, uh, washing your hands when you've been around uh, a sick person. I definitely can understand doctors and nurses washing their hands or using uh, um, antibacterial uh, substances all the time in hospitals. So, so that's one thing. But um, constantly scrubbing your body with soap, I just uh, don't think that it is a particularly uh, necessary thing to do. So um, I'm for uh, showering with, with warm water. And uh, that's just my own shtick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but there is a microbiome on the skin that is constantly changed whenever you use soap. So, I don't know. I call it, I do strategic use of soap. Strategic use of, that's yeah. really good. Particular, particular places. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a, a uh, something I want to ask you about that I think I, I was really fascinated in the book uh, towards the end. You talk about what I can only call an epiphany, right? So at one point, or Claire says, I had this, this is after she has left her, the boyfriend. Yeah. The, um, I had this amazing experience. I was looking out the window in my rooming house and everything began to shimmer. There was a gray squirrel looking at me. His tail was shining. Then time stood still. Everything seemed connected and shining and pulsating. I can't explain it very well, but I did write it down afterwards. Everything was right and effortless. All I had to do was beam on the world. What was that? Um, her, her, uh, her, her new boyfriend explains that uh, this was uh, written about by William James as a transcendental experience. And it happened to me uh, twice in my life, completely unexpectedly. And uh, it is, um, I'm sure it's different for each person, but for me, uh, beaming on life, that's, that's my message. <laughs> I want you to say more about it. What do you think was happening there? What, you know, was there a trigger to it? Was there a, an explanation for it you can give? I mean, is this a mystical thing to you? It's a mystical thing. Mm -hmm. Well, so there's this, uh, I can't remember his name, but you may. There's a Japanese-American pharma, Japanese pharmacologist at the Haight Street Free Clinic. And I asked it'll, him what, It'll come to me. Yeah, yeah. I asked Daryl and Abba. Yeah, Daryl and Abba. Okay, so I said, Daryl, what happens in this kind of experience? I described it to him. And he said, serotonin with a drop of dopamine. 
See, the lights went out. So, and so you're talking about a trigger of uh, endogenous chemicals, yeah. the natural chemicals yeah. to us. But so, but why this uh, mystical experience then? I'm just <laughs> no. I'm just wondering. You know, I mean, you're, you're a, a scientific person, and so this has happened twice, and it seemed like it was a formative. It was coming in this book anyway, and this time, right when you were finding your freedom yourself, as it were. Yeah, it comes. At, it came both times at a time of self-realization and um, and. Uh, I can't say more than that. Mm. I feel very lucky that it has happened to me, mm-hmm. and uh, and I don't I I don't believe in a spirit out there that is controlling us or anything. I think it is an endogenous thing that happens, but I don't know why. How many people in this room have had such a spontaneous experience? Okay, okay. <laughs> three quarters. Uh-huh. Oh, that's so wonderful. Uh-huh. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you. So, and then some people have had them induced by other things, I'm, I, I expect here, too. Um, so that, that counts, yes. So this book takes you up to medical school. Yeah. When's the sequel coming? It isn't. Putting you on the spot. You no, don't want no, to write no. You don't no. want to do it? No, I, I, really, uh, I really enjoy writing columns for the Hearsay News <laughs> and uh, for Point Ray's Light. And, and uh, there's so many other things. I mean, writing a book is a Well, you are a writer, you know. It's a huge, huge endeavor. And um, I'm spending my time on other things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you wrote this one. I like to do these at 90 minutes, so I'd like to okay. formally end it here, but if you're willing to then have questions from people, yeah, that sure. would be So, Saja, it's been an honor, and thank you for being here. Thank you, Thank you all for coming, too. So yeah. we'll stick around, and if you want to ask questions, you don't have to stay, but I mean, if you want to, please. Yes? Saja, I was wondering if you'd comment on the uh, U.S. response or and or the CDC's response to Ebola. <laughs> CDC's response to, or United yeah. States response to Ebola. Um, I th- uh, ever since I read the first uh, 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 account of why um, the uh, the guy from um, uh, Liberia was turned away from the hospital, I was furious. Because, uh, because it was obvious that he had an accent. He must have had an African accent. Uh, and um, it was uh, obvious that he was sick. It now turns out he had 103, not 101. And um, the nurse knew that he had come from Africa, from an African country which had uh, Ebola, and it didn't get transmitted. And I remember uh, recently in the New York Times, just in the last couple of days, somebody wrote an article about how electronic medical records are full of so much information that the crucial things can get lost, Mm -hmm. and why it wasn't just said, hey, wait a minute, 
this guy's from Liberia, he's been around. Yeah. Why that wasn't said right then and there, he might, it might have saved his life. And I also don't understand why he was, when one of the doctors uh, on the East Coast um, uh, offered to, uh, to send serum, convalescent serum to him, why didn't he get it? Why didn't they, they're doing it with the nurse now, but why didn't they do it with that patient? Was that racism? Was that, what was that? So I think it was botched. And um, I have such a respect for emergency room doctors. I'm always telling this to Alan. I just, I wish I had become an emergency room doctor. I think they are just the most fantastic and they're so quick and they're so smart. So what happened in this emergency room? I just don't understand it. <laughs> Other questions? Somebody had it. <clears throat> I want to say you have the most wonderful laugh. I just love oh, that. thank you. <laughs> so, and you do it so much, which is great, yeah. being that you're very serious. Um, <clears throat> what about osteoporosis? And is, I've heard calcium is kind of controversial, but it's not helpful. It's not controversial anymore. Cal the, the calcium controversy that that it might uh, increase a woman's likelihood of getting heart disease has been, it has been found to be completely um, uh, disavowed when they really looked at the studies. So women can feel fine taking, taking calcium. Yeah. Question over here. Saja and Alan, I just wanted to say that um, I enjoyed coming to um, UCSF when they um, honored you as among the 10 San Francisco physicians who stood up for abortion. Mm -hmm. oh, that, was, that was such an important thing. Thank you. And my grandmother came here from Finland in, in 1912, and she was um, also bringing, uh, bringing diaphragms into the country. She was you know, bringing <laughs> diaphragms into the country. Um, I went to work at Case Western Reserve, um, I was there after you, um, and was starting the, uh, we started a um, family planning clinic at Case Western Reserve in the basement, and um, I was going, and it was right during, uh, when I got to Cleveland, um, there were still um, jeeps on the street with um, people with bayonets, you know, rifles with bayonets, mm -hmm. and huff riots had just happened. And this hospital was right on that border, um, and um, we had the, we started this clinic, and um, I would go up to the postpartum unit, which you know had young girls from eleven, mm -hmm. young mothers, young and new mothers. Mm -hmm. I go to the postpartum unit to teach a birth control class in this Black Power um, time, and um, we were never we never I invited husbands you know, in the, in the postpartum unit to come to the class. And it was always about the family. It was always the way that, that I always expressed it was how important it was to the family that this new baby have time to get to know the yeah. family. You know, that was a really, really big thing. And um, um, we had, we started with 300 people. There were 300 people enrolled in my clinic. And two years later, there were 3,000. Oh, that's so good. It was, it was just so wonderful, you know, to have that opportunity. Um, and it definitely put me, you know, in, in that whole realm of, of women's health. 
And then I became one of those uh, menopause rebels, um, thanks to your book. There were quite a few of us in town that uh, followed your way of doing things, and I brought that to my practice here also. And my daughter is now um, working on a, on a long, long study of um, how abortion, or not having an abortion, affects uh, a woman's life. Mm -hmm. And it's called the Turnaway Study, and they've already come up with some real strong statistics about what the differences are. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a testimony. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Question? Yeah. You're... I started noticing in 1974 that the nutrition issue was a pretty important thing medically. So it's taken me 40 years to kind of still be working on it. And so I'm always happy to hear what you have to say about it. And I recognize that there's a tremendous amount of turf war about it because modern medicine, of course, doesn't want there to be a, a challenge to its primacy. And um, what, what advice do you tend to give people when... <coughs> they're looking to create sort of complementary supports for themselves using these sort of nutritional means and, and to authenticate it for them when they're, they have conditions of one sort that are likely to possibly responsive to support, nutritional supports of one sort or another. And um, I mean, the words we use typically is that they say is that instead of the magic bullet, there's the green shotgun. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a kind of a nice way of saying it. But so... But to validate people's urgency and needs to address themselves using nutritional means, how do you instruct them in that direction and, and, uh, and try to also validate the wholeness of that is really my question. Yeah, so that's a, that's a wonderful question and a difficult one. And I, I think um, one thing I learned in, in mediation is to start with questions. So I might start by saying, What's, what do you think, let, let's talk about food, what do you think is the healthiest thing that you, can, that you are doing for yourself and that you can do for yourself? And we write it down. And uh, then taking, taking it from them, people usually, people usually know. People usually know, even though they're, you know, they're fixed on, on, on chips and sodas, that the best thing they can do for themselves is bok choy. <laughs> so that's how I would. That's how I would start. But, but the, what I, I guess I was still looking for yeah. a little bit more. Uh, I was trying to repeat myself, but there, the issue that the issue that actually that health promotion and, and recovery itself is can be substantially improved with. Yeah. Uh, uh, the bok choy, if you will, but the the issue of validating that sufficiently so it's considered legitimate therapy, so that it's oh, really yeah. you know embraced in a holistic kind of way. I mean, I certainly at the initial stage of what you just said, certainly that's a good place to start. But at the same time, it seems to me so many people have a hard time embracing the fullness yeah. of what the nutritional path yeah. can be in terms of uh, the wellness promotion. And the and the actually, the actually addressing of, of even significant uh, medical conditions. So I guess I'm sort of asking okay. for a little bit more down that. Yeah. Road. Okay. So I, I might ask them if they like to read. And you know, those of us that are avid readers, there's a lot of people that don't. But if they, <laughs> but if they say yes, then I turn them on to uh, uh, 
the Nutrition Action Health Letter by Center for Science and the Public Interest because it's, um, it's very easily readable. It's very uh, well done. And uh, they take up significant subjects month after month after month. And it's not that expensive. So I'll try to get people to, uh, to subscribe to that. Um, the other newsletters that I like are the, the Tufts University uh, health letter and, um, and uh, one from, um, well, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll stick with those, with those two. Yeah, yeah, so th those are good. But if they don't like to read, you know, I, I recall a guy who, who said to me once when he, he uh, uh, was uh, quite, quite ill and uh, his teeth were falling out, and I started to talk to him about nutrition. He was a gambler, and um, he said to me, I haven't the slightest interest in what you're talking about. <laughs> So, so that was an eye opener. <laughs> so yeah, so I would try to find some other way. I would ask him how how can uh, how can we work together to improve it, to improve your diet and and uh, just give me some ideas of who's been positive in your life about this or you know just. It, it's, some people, it's hard. They're very resistant. Other than Rebecca Katz, are there nutritional teachers that you like? Maybe that's another way at the same question. In other words, the things that are popular press is filled with the stuff. I mean, every time you can turn on PBS, there's the, the sugar guy, and then there's this guy, and then that guy. <laughs> yeah. What, do you have anything to say about those guys, if you know what I mean? You know, um, I really like Dr. Oz. Nutty as he is in some ways, he is on a crusade almost, crusade is not a good word anymore, but he is, he is, he is in, on fire to try to help the obesity epidemic in the United States and, and to get people eating uh, more natural food. And uh, so a lot of people, women especially, really like watching him. And he is a little, um, he, he, is, he, he is a little too uh, uh, self-promoting and, and uh, kind of tied up with uh, commercialism, but I, I still think he's doing a good job. Yeah. Question? Well, first of all, I just want to say, I really like you. It's reciprocal. Everybody in this room feels the same way. The second thing I would say is, I have about 300 questions, as I always do. I'm wondering if you would, and you don't even have to answer this now, if you'd ever consider doing like a day long, because I feel like uh, particularly for women, but but men may be interested too about you know being a, a, how to be the healthiest woman you can be. Uh -huh. um, you know maybe at Commonweal. Um, the other thing is you you gave me the newsletters. Newsletters to me are a little like reading the comic strips. If I haven't looked at a paper in two years, I don't know where we are. Yeah. You know, so I'm afraid to go to the yeah. new because they're going to be talking about things. That, yeah. Is there a book? Is there, I mean, I've been reading, as you know, tons of books on nutrition, and of course, I pick up one and it says, do this, and then I pick up the other and it says, don't do that, do this, and then the other, and it's, and I've gotten, you know, it's what you were saying, I've just gotten so unbelievably confused. Is there any book that you would say has, is closer to the truth than any other book? The thing about the truth, about, um, 
the, the truths about nutrition is that they're changing all the time, which is why I like the newsletters. Um, and I would like, so I, I'm not relying on books these days, but I would like to think about that and get back to you. Okay. I mean, I saw a PBS thing by Lissa Rankin, which actually started me on a journey, which I now call Moving Toward Vegan. And I, and I gave myself, I said, okay, let's go 80%, 20%, which I'm, which I'm doing fairly easily. And you and a few other people said, you need a little meat. Um, I'm not sure I'm totally there. I'm doing that because I've been a meat eater all my life. But for ethical reasons, I, you know, I, I just, I mean, I take care yeah. of, I take care of dogs and I go, I, I can't, you know, if I love animals, how can I? How can I support killing them for yeah. just because I want to eat it, something? It's, it's so. a big dilemma. I understand exactly what you're saying. For, for older women and, and, and bone strength and muscle strength, uh, more protein is important. And it's really hard to get that from, from nuts and, 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 uh, and beans as a vegan. How about being a fishitarian? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is I go out in the sun at least three times a week, mostly naked if I can be near RCA Beach. I, my feeling is I get plenty of vitamin D. Yeah, so, so why don't you get your level checked and just see where you're at? Because you might be just in a wonderful place. There was a question over here. Yes, well, thank you also for your columns. And flaxseed column was great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a convert. Uh, in your novel, um, Claire has a friend. Is it Molly or Maggie? She has the ability to size everybody up yeah. psychologically. Yeah. yeah. And she says, Claire, when I'm around Michael, he's carrying so much fear, he makes me feel nauseous. Yeah. I'm, I'm really. Did you learn from that that woman? And because uh, yes. uh, 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 I, I I think we're sometimes blind ourselves to um, what do you, how can you, you know, we want to respect people's privacy, so we don't want to say, well, there's a case of uh, yeah. you know, anxiety gone haywire or yeah. something like that. Yeah, she was amazing. She was amazing, and um, I uh, was friends with her um, after, uh, definitely during medical school, even though she had an affair with my husband, which was difficult. <laughs> Um, which she regretted, but um, she was she was she was amazing, and she came to the Bay Area, and she was a psychiatrist in Berkeley, and uh, she died of lung cancer because she was a heavy smoker. Um, but yes, I learned a huge amount from her. She's the one who said, "Do you want to try to be someone yourself, or do you want to try to live through a man?" Right? That I quoted in the beginning. Oh no, no, I meant Molly. Oh well, that was a different Molly. Different Sorry. Molly. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um, but you talked about Michael yeah. earlier, too. So this is the guy who was re- you're referring to. But you have talked to him since. You have reconnected with him, right? Well, I've talked to him uh, throughout the years, once every couple of years. But I found that, and I certainly didn't tell him that I had written this book, but I found that he reviewed it on Amazon. <laughs> And gave, he did on Amazon, and gave it five stars. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't find, I guess he didn't find that it, that it was putting him down. It was really uh, as accurate as I could be about his brilliance. Uh-huh. 
And I think that meant a lot to him. And he became a mathematics professor and solved a lot of theorems and, you know, was very happy with his life. And it was very, he would have been a terrible doctor because he couldn't relate to people. Yeah. That's wonderful. (laughs) Should I let... Alan, have I'm gonna, I'm gonna. She has speakers. Can you focus a little bit. Would well, you yeah. Talk, would you talk a little bit about Mrs. Mann? Yeah. Mrs. Mann. A friend of ours. Yeah. And her attitudes and your attitudes uh, as a representative woman about names, society. Well, um, there was a woman we knew in San Francisco. Her name was Barbara Stannard. And uh, she wrote a book called Mrs. Mann, in which she took on the whole thing of taking on a guy's name when you get married. And I recognize that a lot of people do that for a number of reasons, and I did it immediately. In fact, that was the reason that I wanted to get married when I was 21, because I couldn't wait to get rid of my family name, because it had been given me so much distress. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's lots of reasons uh, that you might want to keep your name and lots of reasons that you might want to change it. <laughs> um, the family name was Greenwood? No, the, what family, was... the family name was Stokowski. And my dad uh, was a, a famous conductor. And right, okay. I thought people only liked me because he was so famous. And that was my whole thing about being liked and not being liked. And Oh, it was just too complicated. Yes. I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. This is wonderful. Yeah. Thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a conversation with Saja Greenwood, MD, 